Thanks, Dad. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you uh, all here this morning. Uh, it's been kind of a hectic morning. The projection system wasn't working there for a little while and uh, lots of moving parts. So thank you for your patience with us as we figure all that out. I'm very excited about the Nicaragua twi- trip. Uh, tremendous, tremendous answer to prayer for us as a church. Please do be praying for those people and also know that we have set up in our budget if, it, if the Lord would delay on your heart to help them financially because it's a huge cost to send, what was that, 11 people uh, to Nicaragua. A huge, huge expense. And so uh, if the Lord were to move, uh, we'd love help. And I know that they would, they're having to raise some money themselves, so I know they'd love help as well. And the second thing is, is what, what my dad was talking about is we do take a mercy offering every uh, communion Sunday, and this week we're doing something abnormal, and that is that all of the proceeds for this offering are going to a specific project, which is being sponsored by the Matt and Leslie Diaz Family Foundation uh, to renovate, actually completely tear down and replace the, the equipment, the, the playground equipment at the Boys and Girls Club here in Winter Haven that, that holds 450 to 500 kids a day. And so that's gonna, that is going to cost thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to do that. Uh, and we're just, we want to get behind Maddie and Leslie and what they desire to do through their foundation. And so we're going to donate all the proceeds that comes from this offering this morning to that project, which will be on the 15th of March. So please open, uh, open your wallets and your purses and be generous to that as well. Uh, we are in the middle of a series walking through the Gospel of Matthew, the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. What, what Matthew and what historically the church has referred to as the passion of Jesus Christ. And we've come this morning to a very, uh, probably familiar, very powerful passage of scripture where Jesus is wrestling with God in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, if you want to read along with me as I read it from Matthew chapter 26, you're welcome to. There are a few Bibles there for you. It's also printed for you in your worship folder. It will be on the screen behind me as well, these 10 verses. Pray for me again. I know last week I said, I don't know how in the world to preach this and it not feel flat. I feel twice that way this week. How in the world to get into this passage and not just feel anticlimactic to the actual reading of the passage. Uh, so let's read together this morning. Matthew twenty six thirty six. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch one hour with me? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word. Jesus is on his way to the cross. And if there's a somber feel to this this morning, it's because this is a somber passage. There's not a whole, you know, there's not a whole lot of room for jokes here, you know? Pastors like to be clever. There's not a lot of room to be clever except to just stare this down, to say we're peering into the moment. Even though he's going to the cross, this is 
in many ways, the moment of his greatest agony and his greatest triumph. Because in just a few short hours, he will, he will have his arms outstretched upon a cross and he will stare up into heaven. And with his last breath, he will say, it is finished. But it's here, it's in this scene where I believe he really wins our salvation. It's here that he says yes to the cross, to the Father's will, and no to himself. You see, Gethsemane is an olive grove on the outskirts of Jerusalem. John, in his gospel, calls it a garden. So the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's significant when you consider the larger themes that are woven in the scriptures and that even my dad kind of stole my thunder a little bit there at the end. Uh, You know, of, of the sense of here's Jesus accomplishing our salvation, willing himself to be obedient to the Father with his face in the dirt in a garden. In fact, uh, after his resurrection in John's gospel, it's amazing. Mary comes into the, gar- into the place where he's been buried. And if you remember, he speaks to her and says, Mary, and John gives this little caveat. She thought he was the gardener. Mary thought the resurrected Christ, the Lord of glory, was a gardener. And here he is in a garden. Now, where in the world, if you remember, where did all the things in the world that went wrong go wrong in the first place? In another garden, of course, with another man, willing himself the enemy of God. And so we've come full circle. And this is not just coincidence. It's the gospel writers doing theology. It's really the gospel writers doing theology. And my favorite scene, I'm going to talk about Mel Gibson's The Passion. I thought about showing some of it this morning, but I'm glad I didn't worry with that due to all the technical difficulties. But my favorite scene in The Passion of the Christ, one of them anyway, is where uh, Jesus is carrying his cross down the Via Della Rosa towards Golgotha, and he stumbles and he falls, and his mother's in the crowd, and she comes running out into the crowd, and he's just absolutely bloody and beaten and can barely even walk. And she says, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And he looks at her and he says, see, mother, I'm making all things new. Now, I yelled in the movie theater when he did that. I mean, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, I mean, I'm not, so, you know, sorry. I mean, Jesus, Jesus, in other words, he understands this is a bigger deal than we've even conceived of. That everything was right and it all went wrong and it was ruined in Eden when Adam, the first Adam said, not your will, mine be done. And everything that was wrong is made right. It's restored in this garden, Gethsemane, when the second Adam prays, not my will, your will be done. Jesus is indeed making all things new. And if you come to faith in him, He can make you new too. So two things I want us to meditate on this morning, just two. And that is just this. I want us to see Jesus' agony, and then I want us to see Jesus' obedience. He's a dying Savior, and he's a doing Savior. Those two things, the dying Savior and the doing Savior. And those are the two points in your outline there that I provided for you. So let's just start with this. Jesus is a dying Savior. Now, perhaps for focus, we could just look at the prayer Jesus offers three times, we're told. Verse 39, my father... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your, but as you will. You see, even in that prayer, even in that just that little prayer there, you can see Jesus' agony and you can see his obedience. And that's the crux of this passage. So let's first talk about his agony. This first part of this prayer. Let this cup pass from me. Okay? Gethsemane comes from a Greek word that means olive press. And that, that's significant. Remember the first garden. The first garden... Uh, was the Garden of Eden. It was the Garden of Paradise. That word Eden means that, paradise. Everything was perfect. Everything was just the way it should be. This garden, where Jesus is working these things out, this is a garden of affliction. It's the exact opposite. It's an olive press. And that olive press, 
refers to the process by which you would take olives from the tree, you would grind them uh, with stone, you know, mills. They would come out in this little paste. And then what they would do is they would take the paste and they would use a press and literally apply, apply enormous pressure to that olive paste so that they could separate the oil from the rest of the paste. Now, that's a good metaphor for what's happening to Jesus here. He's being pressed. He's under an enormous amount of pressure. He's being crushed. And we're told, if you look carefully there in verse 37, that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, that word, that word began there is the verb form of the word for ruler. In other words, he began to be ruled by something. He was overtaken here by sorrow. Something happened in Jesus' soul as he was walking into the garden with Peter, James, and John. Something came over him. It wasn't there before. And then all of a sudden it was there. Something's happened. And Matthew says there in verse 37, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And those words are very significant. That word sorrow means that Jesus is grieving. He begins to grieve. There's this sense of loss. And he just comes undone over this grieving. The word troubled means horror. It's a reference to your worst nightmare. As Jesus is walking along in the garden, something came over him. It was this crushing, overwhelming, devastating sense of horror and loss. This emotional and spiritual and physical, we see, anguish and agony that is threatening to destroy him. He says in verse 38 to his friends, My soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. In other words, get what Jesus is saying. Something has come upon me that makes me feel like it's going to kill me. I'm dying. And that's how distressed he is. Of course, Luke, in his gospel, gives us details. He's a a a physician, so it makes sense that he gives us a detail that other gospel writers leave out. He tells us that in Jesus' agony in the garden that it was so great that he literally began to, to sweat drops of blood. That literally, the blood vessels beneath his skin burst and began, the blood began to seep out of the pores of his skin. I mean, medically we're told that's possible, but only under severe shock and emotional anguish. And so I want you to try to use your imagination this morning, because we somehow have to get into this passage. Have you ever experienced anything, anything even close to this? Some of you, have you, have you ever had a panic attack, Right? If you've ever seen somebody in the throes of a panic attack or if you've ever experienced one yourself, you know, you can't breathe. Your heart begins to race. You begin to sweat. There's this feeling of absolute terror. And maybe some of you experienced that, but I want to say to you very kindly, if I can, whatever panic or whatever terror or whatever pain might have seized upon you, it is nothing in comparison to what comes upon Jesus. I mean, this is a pain, this is a terror, this is a shock, this is a panic that no other human being in the history of the world has ever experienced. And so we've got to ask, what in the world is happening to cause this sorrow to come over him? And that's what's really puzzled people as they've read this passage. Right? Because it can't be, let's think about this for a minute together, it can't be that all of a sudden he's confronted with the reality that he's going to die. It's here, the time has come. I mean, he'd known that all along. Jonathan Edwards has a great sermon on this passage. He says that the cross was the primary errand for coming into the world. His primary errand for coming into the world. So all along, Jesus has been telling his disciples, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me and they're going to, you know, I'm going to be arrested and tried and killed. And so it can't be that he was confronted with the reality of his death. He's known that. I mean, he's known that all along. And this, contrast all of the stories 
Jesus' reaction here, with all the stories of those people who have died for what they believed, even in following him, who've died with courage and poise and stamina. Let me just give you one example. Uh, my son Canaan is named Canaan Ridley, and that's because my mom's maiden name was Ridley, but also because I found out a number of years ago through my grandfather's father, tutelage that I have an ancestor named Nicholas Ridley who was a martyr in England. And actually, outside of Oxford, England, there's a monument to the, to the Anglican Protestant martyrs in England, and Nicholas Ridley was one of those men who were martyred. And it's a really famous story of he and the man that he was... Uh, you know, martyred alongside of that as they were going to the pyre to be set on fire, the man with him said, Master Ridley, do not despair. We shall light a torch in England today that shall never be burnt out. And they died with incredible courage and honor and dignity and poise. I mean, there's no bloody sweat. Right? There was no dread. There was no crying out. I don't want to do this. Let this cup pass from me. So how in the world could Nicholas Ridley and hundreds of thousands of Jesus' followers have died with more courage and poise than he did? I mean, that's ridiculous to even think that, isn't it? And so it begs us to ask, what in the world is coming down on him that has caused such overwhelming agony? And it's not the physical pain. See, it's not the, phys- it's not the thought of the cross. It's not the thought of the physical pain that he's going to endure there. Like, that's my only beef with Mel Gibson's movie, is that the real agony of the cross is not the physical agony, agony as unthinkable as that was. What is it that Jesus has caught sight of? What is it that's come down on him? And the answer is right here. He keeps mentioning it in his prayers. If you look at verse 39, and then again in verse 42, it's the cup. Do I have to drink the cup? Can I pass the cup? It's this thought of the cup. Well, what's the cup? And here's the clue to the whole passage. In the Bible, the cup is a metaphor for the judicial wrath of God against human sin and rebellion. It is this imagery of the cup the prophets used to describe God's wrath and his judgment against sin. So let me just quote a couple passages to you. Isaiah 52, 17. Isaiah says, wake up, wake up, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And again, in Jeremiah 25, 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Jeremiah, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations whom I send you to to drink it. And even this gets carried over into Revelation, chapter 14, verse 10, where we're told of those on the last days who will drink the wine of God's wrath poured in full strength into the cup of his anger and that they will be tormented with fire and sulfur. See, this cup. This cup is the metaphor for the wrath of God against evil and evildoers. And that's the reason. That's the reason my ancestor Nicholas Ridley and others didn't suffer the same sorrow and anguish and dying for the cause of Christianity. Because they didn't face the cup. In their dying, they didn't face the justice of God against evil. They didn't stare down the wrath of God and have it come down on him. But that's what Jesus is facing. And in some sense, this is a mystery. And we don't really, we can't really get inside this passage you know, to really understand all of this, but in some sense, it begins right here. Jesus knew all about this cup. He's talked about it. He, knew, he, he knows the passages of Scripture where, where you know, the, the prophets talk about this. But as he begins to walk in the garden, as he begins to go in there with his friends, he begins to experience the wrath of God. He begins to experience God turning away from him right here in this moment. Tim Keller, a pastor in our denomination, he says it better than I can. He says the sinful human heart wants to get away. It wants to be away from God. And so the way God punishes sin is to give the heart what it wants, what God gives the human heart. 
The ultimate punishment and destruction is to be cut off from the presence of God. And the reason that is punishment and destruction is that we were built for the presence of God. We need the presence of God. Like the flowers need the sun or they wither. We need his love. We need his glory. But when Jesus is walking along, presumably he begins to do what he's always doing. Jesus, if you just read the Gospels, Jesus is always... You know that he's always reaching out to his father, right? In his spare moments, he's always walking along the road and going to his father in prayer and reaching out to grab a hold of of the presence of his father. He lived in complete dependence upon his father. He was constantly going to him for wisdom and strength to carry out the mission. He lived in perpetual, eternal, living communion with his father. And here in this moment, he's probably doing what he's always done. He's beginning to pray before he actually prays. He's reaching out to his father in prayer. In his heart, he would have turned to his father, and that's when it hit him, because when he turned his soul to the father, there was nothing there. Jesus is in the last hours of his life, on the eve of his torture and death, and in these last moments before his arrest, he reaches out for the father's embrace, for the father's comfort, and he found hell instead of heaven open up before him. Jesus turned toward the Father, and there was nothing there but silence and darkness and forsakenness, and he tasted it, and he thought it was going to kill him. Now, I tried to think, I mean, I really did try to think, okay, how in the world, I mean, can you, can you get into my shoes for just a minute? How in the world do you communicate that? I mean, how do you even begin to communicate what that, the crushing sense of what that must have felt like? And I started to think about the, the, two, the two cases of, of the, the, where I've seen people in, endure and experience the most devastating loss. And it, if I could give you two instances, it would be where a grieving, a, you know, a grieving mother who's just lost a newborn child. Right? And then I thought, or a grieving widow who's lost her husband after 60 years of marriage. And so you can think about the pain and the agony and the sadness that goes along with those kinds of things. But can I just say that the love and the crushing sense of loss that a mom who has lost a newborn child, experiences is just a faint whisper. It's an incomplete and imperfection, imperfect, imperfect reflection of the fierce love the father and the son had for one another from all eternity. And every wife, no matter how good the marriage is, and my grandmother can name in this, I'm sure after 60 years of marriage, no matter how good the marriage is, has had to endure being ignored or the other person being grumpy from time to time. But the Father and the Son only experience perfect intimacy and joy and fellowship, but from all eternity. Not imperfectly in the good times for 60 years or so, but forever and ever and ever and ever with more passion and comfort than we can even begin to understand. And then all of a sudden that was gone. See, that's the pain. That's the loss. That's the grief that Jesus is experiencing here in this text. The cup, the wrath of God, the Father has begun to turn away from him. Now let me apply this. And if you see these application points here in your, te- in, in your sermon outline, I would like to just apply this in a number of different ways. Three quick applications of this, okay? And the first is just this helps us come to terms with the wrath of God. The, the church, evangelicalism, is embroiled in a big controversy surrounding Rob Bell's new book uh, called Love Wins. And I'm sure if you pay attention to blogs or any of those kind of things at all, uh, you've seen that Rob Bell, who's a pretty prolific pastor in evangelicalism uh, in Michigan, has come out with a book, and nobody's really sure what it's about, but it sounds as if it's a, he is kind of confessing himself to be a universalist, that because, but because God is a God of love, then the implication is, is that he could not be a God who would send people to hell. 
How could a loving God ever send somebody to hell? I mean, that's kind of the question that he's rolling around. But I want to say, as you look at this passage, if God, I want to just kind of kindly disagree and say, if God doesn't punish evil, that's unloving. That's the most unloving thing a God who's running the universe could possibly do. And if you get rid of the idea of wrath and hell, you do not have a more loving God. You have a less loving God because you have a God who loves without any cost to himself at all. He just snaps his fingers. But if you maintain that God is a judge who punishes wickedness, who's angry at sin, and then if you look and see Jesus here in this garden and Jesus on the cross crying out in anguish because the wrath of God is falling on him, the wrath that should come down upon us is falling on him. That's love. And so it helps us come to terms with that. But second application, and that's just a warning. A warning to those of you who have not yet made a decision for Christ, who don't know where you stand with God, who have just kind of been rocking along. Let me just say to you, if I can, if the anticipation of it, if just the taste of it, this wrath, sent the Son of God into shock to the point that he began to sweat blood, can you imagine the agony and the horror of having to drink the cup to the dregs for all eternity? At the first sip, Jesus is completely undone. And so Jonathan Edwards, I'm going to quote Jonathan Edwards a bit here, but Jonathan Edwards, who is a Puritan pastor theologian, says, if the wrath of God was so dreadful that when Christ only expected it, his human nature was nearly overwhelmed with fear, then how foolish are we who are under the threatening of the same wrath of God and are condemned to it and at every moment exposed to it, and yet instead of manifesting intense apprehension, are quiet and easy And unconcerned, instead of being sorrowful and very heavy, go about with a light and careless heart. Instead of crying out in bitter agony, are often gay and cheerful and eat and drink and sleep quietly and go on in sin, provoking the wrath of God more and more without any great matter of concern. How foolish. So what's Edward saying? Wake up. But if you're here and your faith is in Christ... Can I offer comfort to you? If your faith is in Jesus Christ, if it's not, go to him. But if your, faith, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then there's a comfort for you too here because we're really talking about this big word, this big fancy theological term. We don't do this a lot, but this doctrine of propitiation. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then Romans 1, 8, 8, 8, 1 is true. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? I mean, is that worthy of an amen? I know it's a Presbyterian church. Right, that should cause you that should cause you to come undone with joy that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that we can come to this table this morning and drink the cup of peace the cup of salvation. And if your faith is in Jesus God is not against you. He's for you. He's a father who disciplines his children as all good fathers do, but there's no condemnation, there's no wrath. So let me just ask are you living like that's true? Are you, are you walking around on eggshells with God? Or do you know that the wrath's been taken care of? The cup's been drank. So just think about those things. He's a dying Savior. But then secondly, let's look. Not only is he a dying Savior, but he's a doing Savior. And so let's look at his obedience for just a minute. In the second part of his prayer... Jesus says, yet not my will, but yours be done. So Jonathan Edwards in his sermon on this passage asks, why does God allow Jesus to begin to experience his wrath here? Why this, why this preliminary experience in the garden before the cross? And the answer he comes to, and the answer I think the text offers even, 
this is this, I believe. It's that Jesus had to begin to taste the wrath of God here in order to make his obedience in going to the cross even more beautiful and more perfect. I mean, look what happens. Three times we're told he goes away to pray. I mean, this is, this is a real struggle. I mean, he had, I mean, it's not like Jesus walks into the garden. You know, it's like, Lord, let this cup pass from me, not my will, but yours be done. Okay, let's go. There's none of that. It takes him three. He's got to go three times. I mean, he's not robotic. He's, he's in the throes of a great struggle in his own heart and soul. He's agonizing over this decision. This is a real struggle. And I think Mel Gibson, if I could just say, gets this exactly right. Because if you've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, it opens. The opening scene is Jesus in the garden. And guess who's there with him? Satan. He's right there with him. And so you've got, there's Jesus in the dirt, almost gasping for air, fighting for the faith to overcome his fears and his doubts and to get on with the mission. And Satan is there and he keeps whispering in his ear. It's too heavy a burden for one man. Do you really think this is going to work? And then, I mean, then it gets really ugly. He says, you know, who is your father? And who are you? And then almost as if in response to all of these accusations Satan is making comes the words Jesus says, Father, let this cup pass from me. And it's amazing. You've got to go watch it. It's amazing. As soon as he says, let this cup pass from me, the camera flashes over to Satan and he does this number. Like, I got him. I got him. And then there's a long pause. And then comes the second half. Yet not what I will. But what you will. And the scene ends. Jesus is on his face. And a snake begins to slither out from underneath the robe of the satanic figure is wearing. And it makes its way towards Jesus laying there. And it begins to crawl all over him. And just in that moment, Jesus stands up. And, I mean, I, you've got to go watch it. And he looks Satan in the face with this defiant look. And if you, something's changed in his eyes. And he stomps on the head of the snake. And he goes to the cross. I mean, that's, that's, I don't, he, that's good theology. And what we learn is that Jesus didn't just come to die the death that we should have died. He also came to live the life that we should have lived. He wasn't just a dying Savior. He was a doing Savior. And the doing had to do with the law. And the summary of the law, as we've seen over and over again, is to love God and to love your neighbor. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in these verses. He's perfectly loving us. He's perfectly loving God the Father. And I've got to get to it here. So let's look at those two things really quick. Let's contrast those two things being offered here. Jesus... Loving us, Jesus loving the Father. Now, look at the contrast being offered between Jesus and his disciples. What's Jesus doing? He's wrestling in prayer. He's sweating blood. He's staring down the wrath of God for for his people, for his disciples. And what are they doing? What are his friends, his ministry partners doing? They're asleep. Three times he comes to them and he says, I've never asked you to do anything for me, but now I'm asking. It's the hour of my greatest need and the only thing I want is to not face it alone. Isn't that great? And that, that's just human. And three times they fall asleep. And it's a picture of sinful humanity. Those guys are representative of all of us. That Jesus is in the middle of the single greatest heroic moment in the history of the universe. And they can't stay awake for it. And I started to think, you know, I'll stay up to watch a Florida State football game. I'll stay up to watch a World Series game. You know, I'm more passionate about Little League Baseball than I am about the gospel a lot of times. And I'm a lot like these guys. And what's amazing, and this is where Jonathan Edwards is so great, 
What's amazing is that Jesus did not say and hear his words, Why should I, who am so great and glorious, a person infinitely more honorable than all the angels in heaven, why should I go to plunge myself into such a dreadful, amazing torment for worthless, wretched worms that cannot profit God or me and that deserve to be hated by me? Why should I, who have been living from all eternity in the enjoyment of the Father's love, go to cast myself into such a furnace for them that can never requite me for it? Why should I yield myself thus to be crushed by the weight of divine wrath for them who have no love for me? They do not deserve any union with me and never did and never will do anything to recommend themselves to me. Why should I? No, he didn't say that. He didn't go there. He didn't do that. In Edward's words again, he says, The anguish of Christ's soul at that time was so strong as to cause the wonderful effect upon his body, but his love to his enemies, poor and unworthy, was stronger still. Listen to this. This is, this just is, the heart of Christ at that time was so full of distress, but it was fuller of love. His sorrows abounded, but his love did much more abound. Christ's soul was overwhelmed with a deluge of grief, but this was from a deluge of love to sinners in his heart, sufficient to overflow the world and overwhelm the highest mountains of its sin. Those great drops of blood were a manifestation of an ocean of love in Christ's heart. He's loving us, but he's also loving the Father. You see, God is putting him to a test. He's being tested here. God is saying to him, will you obey me? Despite your circumstances. But here's the difference. Every other time God comes to somebody and says, obey me, he says something like this. And if you read Deuteronomy, if you read the places in the Old Testament, obey me and you will live. I will bless you. I will reward you. I will do good to you. That's what he did in the first Adam. Remember in Genesis, obey me and you shall live. God came to Adam, obey me about the tree and you will live. Don't eat from the tree and you will live. But here's the exact opposite. Here God says to Jesus, obey me. And you'll die. Obey me and I will curse you. I'll send you to hell. Now think about this with me. Sin began in a garden where the first Adam said, Not your will, mine be done. And that's the cry of every heart in this room. Not you, me. Me. Salvation comes in another garden where the second Adam prays the heart-wrenching prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. Not me. You, and so sin began when the first Adam disobeyed God about a tree. Now salvation is coming when the second Adam obeys God about a tree. The first Adam was told, obey me about the tree and you will live. The second Adam was told, obey me about the tree and I will nail you to it and I will destroy you on it. And he went. I mean, we're witnessing the most beautiful and the most perfect act of obedience in all of human history, that Jesus obeyed God and got nothing out of it. He did it sheerly out of love for us and love for the Father. And this is important for us to see that he's not just a dying Savior, he's a doing Savior, because if all he did was die in our place, then when we believe in him, we have forgiveness, our sins are wiped out, but this is what most people believe. Then, But now it's up to us from this point forward to live a good life. In other words, a lot of people are caught in this trap of being a Christian is like a, a, a divine do-over. That all of my past sins are washed away and I've got a clean slate now and it's now my job to be a good little boy. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus died the death we should have died and he lived the life we should have lived. And so in the garden, he was receiving from God what we deserve so the result would be that we could get what he deserves. That our record of sin and rebellion is credited to him. His record of perfect, this, this record of perfect obedience he's winning can be credited to us. That it can be ours. Now, just apply this with me really quick, and then let's come to the table. 
Look at these applications. Application number one, then, this means that Jesus, then, is a model for obedience for us, isn't he? He's a model for submission. I mean, can you, can you picture the submission? I mean, can you get a sense of what it cost him to submit to the Father here? That he did not live for himself. And so in 2 Corinthians 5.15, we're told that the love of God should compel us not to live for ourselves. He's a model for prayer. Isn't it beautiful how he was not wooden here? He expressed genuine emotion. I mean, this is how you pray. He's a model for how to handle suffering. He doesn't give in to despair or self-pity. At the very threshold of hell, he moves towards his Father in faith. And what the Bible tells us in Romans 8.29 is that if God is at work in your life bringing you to salvation, he's doing it in order that he might conform you and me to the image of his Son, Jesus, that Jesus might be the firstborn among firstborn among many brethren. And that just means that Jesus went first, but he isn't to be the last. That he prayed this prayer first, but he's working by the Spirit in us that we would pray it too. And I just want to say that's how we're going to change a city. You want to know how to change a city? The way to change a city is to have an army of people walking around who refuse to live for themselves, who say no to indulgence and extravagance, and who say yes to sacrifice and suffering and downward mobility as a lifestyle, a people who live with a cross, a people who say, not my will, yours be done. That's a people that will change a city, and that's the people he intends that we who follow him be. So what a model. But only as a model, he'll kill, it'll kill you. And so you've got to see second application that this is the power, the application of the power for obedience as well. If you look at that little phrase in the middle of this passage, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Can anybody, anybody just amen that? Oh. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But what great news in Romans 8, 1, that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, we're memorizing this, was powerless to do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and so condemning sin in the flesh, Can anybody say it with me? So that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The gospel is a living power. It's the power of the Spirit. That the gospel, the promise of the gospel is that this one in this garden who has ascended to heaven has come in the Spirit and now lives inside us and is animating us and empowering us by the Spirit to become the kind of people who can truly follow him. And so we can submit. I mean, where do you find the power to submit? Look at Jesus, who submitted himself to this for you. I mean, where do you learn how to pray? We're told the Spirit comes, and the Spirit now prays, Abba, Father, through us. Where do you learn to go into suffering? I mean, there, there's an olive press. There's a Gethsemane for you, too. But here's the good news. Here's how you can walk into suffering. God might send you into Gethsemane. There might be an olive press for you. But I can promise you one thing. Your faith, if your faith is in Jesus, even if you go into a Gethsemane, you will not face the cup. And so we can listen when Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, though, though, though the floodwaters overtake you, though the fire consume you, it will not burn you up because I'm with you. Why? Why? Why does God say you can go right into the fire and not be, not be consumed? Why? Because the fire of God's wrath consumed him. And so even though if it's Gethsemane, there's no cup. And so that is the very thing that gives us the courage as a people to pray. Not my will, but yours be done, which is the very prayer. That Jesus longs to form on our lips in the very prayer that he must do in order for us to do the work that we want to do ultimately in our city. So let's pray uh, that he would do that as we were run late. You're just going to have to bear with us this morning uh, as we come to this table. Lord Jesus, come and do this work in us, we pray.
that it might be to your great glory and that you might bear fruit through us. I mean, that is our prayer. We stand amazed and we marvel at the reality of your love and at your being willing to pray, yet not my will but yours be done. Lord Jesus, come by the Spirit and form us into a people who might pray likewise. Use this time as we come to your table to do that very thing, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for bearing with us this morning. We had a lot to get through, and so I really do appreciate it. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, uh, then what this passage this morning we looked at teaches us is that the hard hand of God's wrath came down upon Jesus for you so that now I can raise my hands as the Father does in blessing over you and pronounce this benediction. So receive this benediction then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Uh, both now and forevermore. As you go to whatever Gethsemane he might send you to, you go not drinking the cup. Amen. Go in his peace.